Hello, my name is Mallory Jenna Robinson. Join me on A Hateful Homicide, a true crime podcast dedicated to telling the stories regarding the murders of transgender, gender non-binary, and gender diverse community members in the United States and abroad. This is A Hateful Homicide. 911, what's your emergency? Yeah. transgender woman has been shot and killed in North Baltimore, Alpha. In the U.S., trans women of color have a life expectancy of just 35 years. This happens on a daily. Another one of my friends got killed right up the street from here. These cases are true. The victims are real and their voices matter. This is A Hateful Homicide. The Murder of Angie Zapata, Wednesday, April 22nd, 2009, Greeley, Colorado. Angie was my sister. She was a member of our family. We loved her very much, and we will miss her every day. Every day and every night, my mom has to deal with the great pain that she saw one of her babies being buried. An experience no parent should have to witness. Every day, my siblings and I reach for the phone and realize we'll never hear her voice. There are times we call and get <clears throat> try to get her advice and realize there's no answer anymore. A part of our family is missing, stolen from us. Angie was 18. Her life was just beginning. Angie was brave. She had guts, had courage, and was beautiful, was fun, and loving. She was our little sister. Throughout the past week and a half, we have watched as our sister Angie was lied about in this court. We watched angrily as defense presented an image of my sister that wasn't true. Their strategy, and make no mistake about it, it was bullying, tearing, tearing down my sister to make a monster look a bit better. It will not work. We want to make things clear. Angie was our sister, an aunt, and a daughter. Life was sometimes difficult for her. We learned, we learned along with her to understand that she was born a girl with a body that was wrong for her. We know Angie was one thing above all else, honest. Nine months earlier, Monday, July 14th, 2008, Greenlee, Colorado. 18-year-old transgender teenager, Angie Zapata, who is beloved by her family and her community, goes off. She asks her mother, Maria Zapata, if she could go and pick up this guy that she met online 
she met him on a website called Mogul Space. It was kind of similar to MySpace. It was a social media networking website, but it definitely was one where, like, you know, early adults, young adults, and, you know, individuals in their early 30s could all kind of meet up and hang out. And so she's on this website. She meets this individual, a 31-year-old by the name of Alan Andrade. Um, He's a Latino, um, cisgendered male. And the two hit it off. And with permission from her mother, Angie uses Maria's car to go from Greeley, Colorado to Thornton, Colorado. That is the last time that Angie Zapata is seen alive. We know as we delve into this case that she was alive on the 15th based on Alan Andrade's testimony. Alan Andrade was ultimately convicted or at least arrested two weeks after the murder. So between July 14th, the day that she left the 2008, that Monday, and between that Thursday, July 17th of 2008, somewhere in between that timeline, it's hard to narrow down exactly, but Angie Zapata was murdered. Like I said, we have an idea that most likely she was still alive on the 15th. But we know that um, Angie, who was the sixth of six children, we know that two of her, you know, four sisters came looking for her after um, they couldn't get a hold of her that Thursday. Angie was supposed to babysit her niece and nephew. Angie was supposed to be watching the children. She was supposed to return the car back to her mom. And so her two older sisters could not locate where she was. And so they decide to go to her home where they find the car. And as they go inside of her apartment, the lights are off. It's dark. And the next thing the sisters do is turn on the lights and they go into her living room floor of her one bedroom apartment and underneath the blood-stained blanket lie the stiff covered body of 18-year-old Angie Zapata. Her family was mortified. They were horrified. They were confused. They're trying to figure out what has just happened to their sister. The thing is, is that Angie, who is close with her sisters and her brother and her mom, when she went to go meet Alan Andrade, no one knew she was going to meet him. So no one in the family really had an idea of who Angie went and picked up the name of that person and certainly how they could give that name 
two police. But nonetheless, detectives, the personnel, media, going back through Angie's social media accounts, they were able to identify this guy as Alan Andrade. Again, he, at that time in 2008, was an unemployed 31-year-old whom Angie, again, had met on Moco Space. Again, according to Alan Andrade, he did spend at least three days with Angie. And on the third day, Angie went to go babysit her sister Monica's three kids, you know, and she was supposed to watch her children's kids. She stopped by a friend's apartment. She did confide in that friend that she was there with an older guy, that an older guy was waiting at her apartment, and that she was going to get him to help her pay one of her bills. And according to this friend, after Angie Zapata got Alan Andrade to pay one of these bills, that she was going to kick him out of her apartment. Now, according to Alan Andrade, he spent the day alone in Angie's apartment and later told police that he began to grow suspicious, quote unquote, of Angie's gender after looking at the photographs that decorated her living room. He said as she came into the door from visiting her friend, from getting ready to prepare for the evening, the evening before her, her sisters were supposed to, you know, drop off her nieces and nephew. As she walks back in the door, Alan Andrade confronts her. He wants to know, what is she? Who is she? And according to his testimony, recounting his hateful acts that resulted in the homicide of Angie Zapata, he basically goes up to her. He confronts her at the door. He asks her, what are you? She responds according to him, I am all woman. According to Andrade, he then asked Angie, prove it. She refuses. So, according to Andrade, when Angie Zapata stated that she was all woman, and when Angie Zapata refused to validate his suspicions, he snapped. Alan Andrade confessed to grabbing Angie Zapata's crouch, feeling her genitalia that identified that she was assigned male at birth. Unfortunately for Angie, the moment that she refused to cave in and give in to his advances, Alan Andrade ultimately snaps. He confesses to police 
that he literally began beating Angie with his fist until she fell down. He then proceeds to grab a fire extinguisher from the kitchen wall and hit her twice in the head. And what's so unfortunate about this is that in that moment, he goes and he covers her with a blanket. He begins to clean up the scene, this bloody scene, right? Blood splattered throughout this beautiful, neatly cleaned, feminine, expressive apartment that Angie was so proud to have. And as he's cleaning the apartment, (gasps) gasps can be heard. Gurgling sounds coming from underneath the blanket. Alan Andrade looks over and he sees Angie Zapata struggling to sit up underneath the blanket. He sees almost this kind of like, you know, rise after he thought he had killed her. And if that wasn't bad enough, Right, Angie, who's most likely delirious, confused, disoriented, traumatized, I'm sure dealing with multiple contusions and severe head fractures. This poor 18-year-old girl is literally trying to figure out what's going on with her. And next thing you know, Alan Andrade goes, grabs the fire extinguisher and hits her again. This time, this would be the fatal blow. Once he realized that Angie was no longer struggling to sit up, she was no longer struggling to breathe. In that moment is when Alan Andrade decides to flee the scene. He grabs his stuff, he flees. And, you know, it's just really unfortunate when we think about this because, you know, Angie really, like so many of the community members, so many of the cases that we cover, a lot of times is looking for love and oftentimes in all the wrong places. And it's just really unfortunate when we think about how this has, you know, really perpetuated this violence towards trans women in particularly. But here's the thing. Two weeks after Alan Andrade is found guilty, you know, or excuse me, two weeks after he's been arrested for her murder, and then he goes to trial in April of 2009. Nine months later, and after those nine months, Angie Zapata's case became the first case in the nation of the United States to get a conviction for a hate crime involving a transgender victim. This was a huge win for our community to know that anyone who attacked us nationally would be, could be charged federally could be charged as a hate and or bias incident or crime 
And in this case, a crime, a hateful homicide was committed upon Angie Zapata. As we go through these murder details, a recount, you know, again, I want to echo that during these, this time, the time between the murder occurred, we have the 14th and the 17th. And some additional things that Alan Andrade disclosed during his interview was that there was a sexual encounter between him and Angie. Um, we do know that that sexual encounter consisted of um, oral sex being performed on Andrade. Um, and then we do know that Anthony, excuse me, Alan Andrade also had a girlfriend. Um, so not only was he unemployed, he was on Moco Space. Um, he did cheat on his girlfriend um, with Angie. We're not sure. We hardly believe that um, that Angie was aware that Andrade had a girlfriend. But nonetheless, uh, from what we understand, is that Alan Andrade had um, a fight with his girlfriend. He gets on Moco Space looking to take the edge off. He comes across this beautiful, you know, trans Latina, Angie Zapata, unbeknownst to him, according to him, he doesn't know that she's trans, right? We go back into this conversation like with Nyria Johnson and Amanda Milan when we talk about this idea of men not being sure. And when that uncertainty, when that ambiguity happens and that peak and that curiosity is, is increased, the state of paranoia, delirium, and all of that increases to where violence ensues. And this is exactly what happened here. When, you know, he's in jail, he speaks to his girlfriend and part of the tale, um, the jailhouse conversations entailed statements like Andrade saying he thought he had killed it. You know, or like his girlfriend had also said in a phone conversation that she um, that she had to hang up the phone. Her phone was dying. And Alan Andrade says, that's gay. And gay things must die. Um, we do know that Alan Andrade as well, like so many of these perpetrators of violence, especially that ex- escalate to homicides, oftentimes do not feel bad, especially in cases involving trans women where members of the community already look down upon us. So in his mind, I'm sure he felt that he was doing society a favor and that he certainly would not be charged, you know, in a hate crime. But, you know, fortunately for Angie's family, Fortunately for the justice system in this case, it definitely allowed Angie's voice to be heard and for all trans individuals before her and even those who were to come after her to be able to know that if something happens to any of us, that there is a statute of hate crime in place and that certainly extends the sentence. So when we take a look at this case, We have to also delve back into who Angie was, right? So I want to take a moment and talk about who Angie was. So 
As we look at the ending of this case, we go to April 22nd, 2009. The beginning of the episode, I um, I played a clip of Gonzalo, you know, Zapata, the older brother of Angie, giving in a statement, a family statement um, from the conclusion of the murder trial. So this case wrapped up very quickly. You literally had the murder happened most likely July 16th of 2009 and by April 22nd of 2009 within a nine month span Andrade had been arrested, charged, convicted, and sentenced and his sentence was that he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. This also correlates with the fact that Alan Andrade had six prior felony convictions and the judge did quote stating that he was a habitual criminal and his sentence was finally placed on Tuesday, May 8th, 2009. And this did include being charged with a hate crime along with other theft convictions, convictions, ultimately giving him 60 extra years to his sentence. And we note as of October 2015, a little over five years ago, Alan Andrade is currently serving his time at Lyman Correctional Facility. And so that is what happened in this case of our beloved Angie. She wanted to meet someone. She wanted to go on a date. She even wanted someone to help her financially take care of a bill, contribute to her home. And unfortunately, between the evening of July 15th and the evening of July 16th of 2008, between that Tuesday and Wednesday of that year, that month of July, Angie was murdered. And what really resonates with this case for me is that in 2008, I too was 18 years old. I too identified as trans. I too was open. I too had, you know, graduated from high school and was getting ready to go into college. And so you, in this case here specifically, I identify with Angie not only because of the timing of the murder correlating with us being literally the same age, but just also the fact that you have this young 18-year-old trans individual who was just trying to live her life, who had literally tried to go to beauty school. And so to know that her life was snuffed out the way that it was by someone that she had only known for a couple of days, it was really heartbreaking at how shortly and how quickly her life ended. But I want to take a moment to talk a little bit about who Angie Zapata was. I want to talk about the victim in this case. And so Angie Zapata, um, you know, was born on August 5th, 1989 in Brighton, Colorado. And her family states that from an early age that, you know, she was always feminine, that Angie expressed an attraction to boys. Zapata disclosed to her family regarding her gender identity around the age of 16. At this time, she began to completely start her gender journey. And again, I started my gender journey as well at the age of 16. So you see the correlations and the parallels here, and it's really symbolic. 
um, where we differ is that Angie had sisters um, and a brother, and I just have brothers. But nonetheless, you can see that similarities there too. And um, even though she was the youngest of six and I'm the second of five, you still kind of sense that like if we would have been friends in high school, that we probably could have gotten through our gender journeys together and been a support to each other. But I'm so happy, like myself, that Angie um, has a supportive family. And the only thing like a lot of our families do that are supportive is that they just worry about our safety. And so, you know, as you heard in that article, that, that statement from Gonzalo Zapata, he states how Angie is a sister, an aunt. He uses the correct pronouns. For those who are listening and are families of trans, family members of transgender individuals, this is the type of support that we need. We need this space. We need the support of loved ones to be able to really help us, especially in moments of despair, want to give up. And Angie certainly had her fair share of, you know, of, of trauma, of drama. But at the same time, she deserved to have a long life along with others, so many others in our community who no longer have that say. And so we see that. And you know, one of the things that I love is that so many what made her case so different um, than a lot of others, especially as we continue to cover more cases in this first season, is that we really take a look at how Angie's family was so supportive, which really helped. Um, I think it also helped of the location where she was. She was in a, in a very suburban, suburban city, town of Greeley, Colorado, um, which was not too far from Denver. So she really, um, the, the location of the murder, um, the fact that she was so young, I think all of that played a huge role in it gaining national attention. Um, this was also a really big rally for the trans X community to come together and band together throughout the country. And so we really saw a movement, not only throughout the community, but specifically within the trans Latina community, especially for Angie in this case. Um, and it was just really powerful to see, you know, and when we sit here and we think about who Angie was and what she meant to so many people, it's really clear in this statement from Angie's older sister, Stephanie Villabalos, where she does, you know, reference Angie in some cases um, as, you know, who Angie was identified as prior to transitioning. So the statement includes Stephanie, Stephanie saying um, that her little brother never wanted to play with trucks. He wasn't interested in pretending, you know, races. He never opened the Hot Wheels cars. He got his presents. Instead, he liked to watch his older brothers apply their makeup, uh, excuse me, older sisters apply their makeup. Um, he liked to get, he liked to braid the rat tail he wore at the nape of his neck. Um, so she uses a lot of he, him, his pronouns. Um, but she does acknowledge that even though at the time before um, Angie's transition that, um, that she, you know, that she thought that Angie was gay, but through getting to know her sister Angie, that she realized that Angie always felt as a woman. 
you know, she says she can recall, um, Angie's sister can recall Angie coming home crying, upset because kids were picking on her. Um, some who were seniors when she was a freshman, um, confused as to Angie's transition. Um, and so, you know, you see this heartbreak here that she dealt with at such an, uh, at, a, at such a young age. And, you know, when you think about the impact that this has had on this, this family, you know, we have this, um, unfortunately, this Zapata family, um, had faced some other tragedies as well. And four years later from Angie's murder um, in 2012, one of Angie's older sisters, Monica, who was actually first on the scene um, and was really pivotal in getting this case well known and um, covered, died in a car accident in 2012. And so when you hear Gonzalo's statement in the beginning of the episode talking about his mother, their mother, having to bury Angie, and then just a few years later now having to bury another child, you know, I can only begin to imagine the pain and sorrow that the Zapata family has faced um, since 2008, the tragedies and, you know, and our heartfelt positive vibes and prayers and support and goes to that family. And so, you know, it's really important to, to think about the impacts of murder and how it impacts the family members. You know, um, there have been some speculation that maybe Monica was really, you know, sad and, you know, and maybe was, you know, under the influence and there's no concrete evidence, but just if that was the case, you know, certainly losing your sister to a horrific murder, you know, dealing with day-to-day struggles, I'm sure all of that can correlate in, you know, needing sometimes to turn to substance abuse or potentially alcohol. And so, you know, all of that could play a, a, a role in how you recover ultimately. And so that's why it's really important as we take a look at this case of Angie Zapata, that we really think about like what she went through. And, and that's why I really wanted to take a moment to just, you know, talk about this case and how it impacts so many others. And I also want to take a moment and just give you a statement from Angie's sister, Maria, who ultimately passed away a few years later. of a transgender teen is stirring speculation it may have been a hate crime. Tonight, family and friends remember the 18-year-old at a ceremony in Brighton. Fox 31's Kristen Ayers is live with more. Kristen? Well, Andy Zapata was remembered here tonight as a free spirit who was full of laughter and love, but there was talk that her life ended because of hate, all because she was transgender. Why would anybody even dare do something like that? Why? 
It's one of many questions still haunting 18-year-old Angie Zapata's friends and family. They filled a Brighton church wondering who could have beaten Angie to death in her own apartment last week and whether it had to do with who she was. She was beautiful and she wanted people to accept her for who she was. Angie was transgender, born male. She identified as a woman. She didn't care what people thought of her. She always just wanted like be who she was, who she wanted to be, and that was female and to be loved. For friends like Alicia Portillo, her boldness was inspiring. Because <laughs> I'm lesbian and they, they, she gave me the power to not care what people thought of me. <laughs> and her courage to actually dress the way she did, the way she's beautiful. Her friends worry it may have also cost her her life. It should be important to recognize that this is one aspect of um, Angie's identity, and it should be factored in very seriously into the investigation. But Greeley police say there are still no suspects, much less a motive. They're still looking for a key piece of evidence, Angie's car, which... So as we heard those words from the news and Angie's loved ones, so many times you don't realize the impact, again, as I mentioned, that this has on the community and the loved ones of the victims. And so I want you to take a moment and just really think about this young woman's life, 18, graduated from high school, wanting to go to beauty school, babysitting her nieces and nephews. She has her new apartment and is really looking forward to starting her young adult life. And all of that was gone in an instant. And the, again, the impact that this leaves on the community, on the family, is devastating. And, you know, we have to take a look at how we as a country can come together. We as people can learn how to treat others with kindness and caring and just being supportive because, you know, that's what we need. We need less hate and more love. And so I really do hope, you know, that this continues to raise awareness as we cover more cases. I wanted to take a moment as well to play the final words that the judge had for Alan Andrade. I'm gonna defer many of my thoughts and comments that I would like to make because we still have outstanding charges against Mr. Andrade and I still need to make findings of facts and conclusions of law with regard to the outstanding uh, guilty verdicts and the habitual offense charges. But I will say, Mr. Andrade, that um, I hope as you're spending the remaining part of your life, your natural life, in the Department of Corrections without the ability to parole, that you every day think about the violence and the brutality that you caused on this fellow human being and the pain that you have caused not only your family but the family of Angie Zapata. And so the court is going to impose a life sentence in the Colorado Department of Corrections, that is that you spend the remaining natural life in the Department of Corrections without the ability to parole. The court also is going to impose a $35 docket fee, $163 victim compensation and victim assistance fee, 
the court is going to order that you submit a DNA testing as required by law and pay an associated fee of $128. There's a $5 court security fee, a $25 PD fee, and time payment fee. Let me also comment, I think it's important to comment on uh, the professionalism of the attorneys in this case. I think all four attorneys were incredibly professional. I really think you do your profession uh, a service by acting the way you did. Let me also comment that everybody in the gallery acted very appropriately, and uh, including the media. And there's been some criticism why I allow the media in the courtroom. And in my experience, um, quite frankly, I, never, I didn't really notice that you were here. And that's uh, exactly what we expect. So thank you very much for acting professionally. So we are in recess. See you on May 8th for the habitual phase. And so, you know, in this moment, the judge is giving Alan Andrade the final sentence, right? He's ultimately telling him his fees. And if you ever have a chance to take a look at that footage, you can see the voidness in Alan Andrade's eyes. You can see this sense of like emptiness, almost like this detachment from what's happening. You see where he is literally like completely despondent to what the judge is saying. He's rubbing his head. He's like looking away, looking around. You wouldn't even think that he was at a murder trial other than he was just, it was almost like, he was having some sort of out-of-body experience. And that's the thing, too, is that with things like this, you never know if um, perpetrators are being genuine, like if they really are out of their minds or if they're just using that as a defense, especially when we think of cases like we talked about in episode one, like Matthew Shepard and Brandon Tina, right, of these, like, white men that were queer identified and we look at their cases and how there was this gay panic defense like oh I didn't know I felt unsafe or taken advantage of and so therefore I reacted by you know being violent and so we know all too well unfortunately that that is not the case still a lot of times that it is premeditated um, even if you become suspicious right in this moment, like I told you, Angie had been gone all day running errands. Alan Andrade had been sitting for free in her apartment, looking at photos of her, whatever, snooping. And even then, even if he became suspicious of Angie's gender identity and had questions or doubts, he still could have just left. He didn't have to wait for her. He didn't have to beat her and steal her car. He didn't have to you know, get rid of the murder weapon. He didn't have to do any of those things. He didn't have to kill her. He could have left. So even in that moment where the judge is sentencing him and literally, you know, he's looking like, you know, this kind of calm but crazed killer, you still know that he knew right from wrong. He knew when he was cleaning up the scene. He knew that if Angie continued to live, right, I mentioned earlier about her gasping for air, and he went back over and hit her with the extinguisher once more. He knew 
by doing that, that that would assure him more time to not be identified. Because if she had woken up, if she had come back to you and was able to identify him, give his name, then that was gonna get him called a lot sooner. But what he wasn't prepared for was advancements in technology. He wasn't prepared for the GPS tracker on Angie's mom's car. He wasn't prepared for any of those things ultimately leading to him being tracked, convicted, I mean captured. You know, he confesses once he's been captured because he knows the gig is up, he goes to jail. And then even in that moment, he gets in um, into phone conversations with his girlfriend who he cheated on with Angie. And he gets into these same conversations and make, mentions things like gay, all gay things must die. This is someone who would have continued to hurt more of us, more of the community. And so I am so grateful from someone who is a trans woman who would have been the same age as Angie in 2008. Um, I can certainly relate to all of that. And you definitely have this sense of relief that justice was served in this case. Um, and unfortunately, as we cover other cases, there's not always justice. Um, we're going to even take a look at some, like, you know, international cases. And so we'll look and kind of see how those cases as well, how they're covered, the results um, from them as well. And so as we prepare to conclude this case, I just really want to take a moment and just talk with each and every one of you again and just say thank you for taking the time to hear today's episode. Um, just to clarify, we're going to be airing episodes every Saturday um, beginning at 12 p.m. going forward. And I'm so excited for you to tune in. Please share. Please share a hateful homicide. Use the hashtag A-H-H or AH. Um, you can also use the hashtag say ah, A-H-H, say A-H-H. Um, and, you know, those are the things that we want to do. I'm also working on creating a page and really just continue to gain the momentum. I just thank each and every one of you who have tuned in. And please, again, just continue to share the word. This is one of countless cases that we're going to continue to cover. And again, I'm just so thankful that this was the first case in the history of the United States where a perpetrator has been convicted of a hate crime and has been sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. So in conclusion, I just want to say to you, Angie Zapata, we remember you today, tomorrow, forever and always. Angie Zapata, August 5th, 1989 to July 17th, 2008. Rest on my sister, Thank you all again for joining this episode of A Hateful Homicide, and I look forward to seeing you all next Saturday at 12 as we cover our next case. Stay tuned. Thank you.